you. I trust that those words were not just words. I trust that those words were the words of your heart, not just your lips. That as we consider the scriptures, as we consider Ephesians 4, where Paul tells us that he, being the prisoner of the Lord, beseeches us that we would walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we've been called. That vocation of grace wherewith we have been called out of the darkness of this world into his marvelous light. We are, uh, in a very real way, debtors to grace. We'll see that even this evening as we look into John chapter 3. If you could please turn with me in your Bibles to John 3. We've been walking slowly through John 3. Well, not too slowly yet. Or, uh, we will be walking, continuing to walk a bit slowly through this book. Uh, John 3, 9 through 15 is what we are looking at this evening. Uh, last week, we were introduced to a man named Nicodemus. And we were introduced to the concept of being born again by the words of Jesus Christ as he spoke to Nicodemus. We recall that the reality of being born again is a transaction affected through the Holy Spirit's ministry in this great transaction we call salvation. Yet we understand and we will see this week and into next week and then the week after that all three members of the Godhead are very active in the salvation process. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us that new birth. This evening we are going to see the ministry of God the Son in salvation. Certainly when we think about salvation, we do think about God the Son, do we not? Jesus Christ is in many ways and uh, most appropriately the central figure in our understanding of salvation. As we all know, he is the member of the divine trinity who humbled himself through obedience to the Father who took on flesh and secured every man's salvation through his substitutionary atonement on the cross, that which we just sang about a moment ago. In John 3, we have the very special privilege of reading perhaps what we might understand to be Jesus Christ's most clear and concise testimony of his purpose upon this earth and the means by which man might receive the gift of eternal life. And the very heart of that message in regard to the role of the Son of God is found in the passage we're looking at this evening, verses 9 through 15, leading up to those verses which are so familiar to us, John 3, 16, 17, and 18, through which next week we'll understand God the Father and His particular role in salvation, which is... Love and purpose as he sent his son to this earth to die that we might believe and be saved. This evening as we look at these verses, we'll read them in just a moment, I would like us to see three lessons. Three lessons learned from Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John 3, 9-15 regarding the Son of God's role in the process of salvation. Let's read them together as we begin, beginning in verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man 
be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The first lesson we will learn this evening in regard to the role of God the Son, Jesus Christ, in salvation is this. Jesus' physical ministry established his spiritual authority. Jesus' physical ministry established his spiritual authority. Now, we recall from last week, following Jesus' exposition of the new birth, that effect of the Holy Spirit in salvation, Nicodemus now asks the question in verse 9, how can these things be? How can these things be? Now, as we recall last time, Nicodemus was not necessarily reflecting a heart of unbelief. We remember from John 2, the leader of the Jews, the leaders of the Jews reflected a heart of unbelief as they questioned Jesus Christ's authority, trying to draw the attention off of the, the great righteous act that Jesus Christ had just done cleansing the temple. And in order to draw the people's attention off of that righteous act, they questioned the authority by which he did such a righteous act. Now Nicodemus, one of the leaders of the Jews, comes and he asks Jesus some questions by night. And we made it very clear that Nicodemus isn't necessarily asking these questions in the same authoritative, condescending manner that the leaders of the Jews did. But rather he is truly coming before the feet of Jesus Christ to understand what it was that Jesus was coming to do. Now we all know when we are presented with things in our lives, perhaps truths in our lives, where we have found ourselves to be in error, when we are confronted with our own ignorance or our own inadequacy, we can do often one of two things. We can either admit our ignorance and take steps to correct the situation, to inform ourselves, to correct ourselves, or we can harden ourselves in our ignorance, defend our own ignorance, and bolster our own pride. We see this all the time. We see this in, secular, in the secular, secular world, particularly since it's that season in the world of politics, do we not? A man who has claimed something, perhaps he claimed an issue on economics or whatever the case may be, and in time he recognizes, as I'm sure many of them do, that they're incorrect on certain issues. But these men are politicians. These men are knowledgeable. They're supposed to be knowledgeable. And so when they come to this point where they recognize they have been wrong on an issue, they can go one of two ways. They can either defend their own ignorance, defend this false issue, knowing that, yes, it's wrong, but they don't want to look bad in the eyes of the people. Or they can humble themselves. They can correct the issue. They can realign themselves with the truth. Happens all the time in a spiritual context as well, does it not? I believe it happens quite often to pastors. I'm a young man. I'm young in my ministry. I'm sure I have said things from behind this pulpit and other times that I will regret in five years. That as I'm continuing to study the scriptures and as I'm continuing to understand the word of God, I'm going to have to look back and I'm going to say, oh no, I was wrong on that. I didn't quite see that clearly. I've got two options. I can stand behind this pulpit and I can continue to pound my error into the heads of the people because I don't want them to think that their pastor has ever thought wrongly about doctrine or scriptures. Or I can stand up behind the pulpit and I can tell my people, you know, I got something wrong. And I'm a human, just like everyone else is a human, and I made a mistake. And now, based upon 
what I understand from scriptures, I am going to change my position and I trust you can respect that and of course the people would. And so this happens all the time and I believe this is exactly what Jesus Christ was doing here. I believe he was confronting Nicodemus in a very real way to see how Nicodemus would respond. Look with me at verse 10. Nicodemus asked, how can these things be? And, and notice Jesus Christ's answer. Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Is he not piercing the pride of Nicodemus just a little bit here? You're a master in Israel. You are a teacher. You are a leader of the Jews and you don't know these things? Really? I have a very real experience in my own life where I recognize in hindsight that something like this happened to me. I was courting my now wife at the time. She was not my wife. And I was visiting her family for the first time and her father did something very similar to this circumstance with me. Of course, it was a different uh, context within which he did it. He used a situation to draw me out a little bit, to draw out my response, to see what would happen when I was rebuked. Would I respond in anger? Would I respond defensively? Or would I admit that what I had just did was wrong? Now, the situation was, was a minor one. He and I were installing a cabinet, and we were using some cement anchors, some concrete anchors, and I had never used such concrete anchors before. And I think he was just looking for a circumstance. I put it in backwards. And I put that, he asked me to put the concrete anchor in. I put it in backwards, and he looked at me. And he said, what are you doing? How in the world could you think that it should go in that way. Now, if you understand, most of you have met my father-in-law. If you've met my father-in-law, that's not his personality. He would never, ever get on somebody for such a minor thing such as that. But he nailed me to the wall on that. How could you do that? How could you think that that anchor would go in? Look, the threads aren't even in the right direction. He, he just really hammered me to see how I would respond, to draw out my character. And I think... Jesus Christ is doing a little bit of that to Nicodemus here. You're a master in Israel and you don't know these things? You don't understand what I'm telling you and you're one of the teachers of Israel? How's Nicodemus going to respond? I believe Jesus Christ is drawing him out. Well, he doesn't really wait for Nicodemus to respond though. As he continues, he gets right into his lesson. In verse 11, he begins to draw the parallel between his earthly ministry. Remember, that's our point here. Jesus Christ's earthly ministry established his spiritual authority. He is drawing the parallel between his earthly ministry and his spiritual teachings. Now, we remember again in chapter 2, we saw this series of interactions between Jesus and the Jews. Jesus overturned the table of the money changers. He drove out the merchants. He defended his actions on the basis of his authority, which would, he said, be revealed when they destroyed the temple and in three days he would rise it up again. So on the basis of his authority over death, he therefore had the authority to do what he was doing in the temple. Following these events, the scriptures state that many believed on him and it states that many believed on him because of the miracles which he did. Well, in John 2, we didn't read of any miracles. In John 3, we... Uh, are jumping right into the, the conversation with Nicodemus. And so these miracles, whatever they were, at least in the book of John, have gone unrecorded. Perhaps in the other books, there may have been some of the miracles during the Passover that may have correlated to this Passover. We know there were at least three Passovers during Jesus Christ's ministry. 
But as Jesus now speaks with Nicodemus, he states that all of those things, all of those miracles that he did, all of those things wherewith the people believed on him had been done. And they had been an earthly perspective with a very clear spiritual intent. Certainly, the miracles were very earthly. It was physical healing. It was physical miracles. But the miracles were not in and of themselves the end all. The miracles, the purpose of the miracles, the point of the miracles, the direction that the miracles were pointing men was in the direction of Jesus Christ's spiritual authority. He overturned the tables of men who were clearly in violation of God's law. There was nothing crazy about that except that the Jews had allowed the merchants to be there to begin with. He validated his authority by promising he would raise up his body after the Jews would destroy it. He performed miracles in the sight of all men, revealing the authority that he has comes from God. But even these physical displays of his spiritual authority were rejected by the Jewish leadership. It's important to note at the end of verse 11 that there's a definitive shift in pronoun reference. One of the things I love about our King James Bible is that it makes pronoun reference so obvious. In verse 9 and 10 and at the beginning of verse 11, we see thee and thou being used. Jesus Christ is referencing him specifically. But as we get to the end of verse 11, notice he says, we testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. In the King James version of our Bible, the translators did something wonderful. They reflected Greek pronoun reference into the English. So when we see the these and the now and the thous, Jesus Christ or whoever is speaking is referencing second person singular, you, one person, the thou. Excuse me. When he says you or your or ye, it's second person plural, speaking to a multitude of people. Tremendous precision as our King James translators translated the Bible into English. And so as Jesus Christ condemns those who have not received his witness, notice he's not speaking specifically, Nicodemus, thou hast not received our witness. He's saying, Nicodemus, ye have not received our witness. The Jews, the leaders, have by and whole rejected the authority of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus asks Nicodemus simply, verse 12, if a man doesn't even believe the earthly things that he sees with his eyes, how can he believe the heavenly things that he must see by faith? That's the great question. If a man cannot believe the earthly things, the miracles, the authority that Jesus Christ comes in in an earthly fashion, how can they believe? the spiritual truths such as the new birth? How can they understand something as enigmatic as the Holy Spirit if they won't even accept Jesus Christ healing the sick and the lame, causing the blind to see? How can they do that? How is it even possible? And so Jesus establishes his spiritual authority through his physical actions. That which Jesus did reveals that he is the Son of God. And this is why the scriptures are so important. Because in them, we have proof that Jesus did what he did with the authority of God. 
gives us proof of who Jesus was. We must not miss this when we tell others about Jesus Christ. If they will not believe what Jesus did, they certainly won't believe who Jesus was. If they will not believe that Jesus lived, that Jesus came, that Jesus performed the miracles, that Jesus did what the Bible claims he did, then they certainly won't believe what Jesus claimed and did come to do. There will be those who, as we tell them about Jesus' life, will say, well, that was just a book written by men anyway. None of it is true. But that should not deter us, nor should that surprise us. If the spiritual leaders of Jesus' day, the ones who many of them had the Pentateuch memorized from start to finish, the men who claimed authority over all things spiritual, the men who knew the prophets, the men who knew the law, if they saw the works of Jesus Christ firsthand, saw the very miracles from him in flesh and refused to believe, it should not surprise us when men reject the inspired word of God. Similarly, when a man whom you are speaking to willingly accepts the truth of Christ's life, who he was, what he came to do, perhaps that is a good indicator that his heart is then ready to accept the spiritual truths of Jesus Christ's complete purpose. And so let's allow our evangelism to be modeled after Jesus' own ministry. Let's allow the teachings of Jesus Christ regarding what he came to do and how it is a man can receive those spiritual things from God to be modeled after Jesus Christ's own testimony here in John chapter 3. Thus we understand first of all that Jesus Christ's physical physical ministry, that which he was doing physically on earth, had a much greater purpose than simply the physical. He was establishing unto men the spiritual. He was establishing in the hearts of men the reality that he had authority, not just on earth, but in heaven as well. Our second lesson this evening, verse 13. Jesus' spiritual authority revealed his divine origin. So his physical ministry revealed his spiritual authority. Second, we see that his spiritual authority revealed his divine origin. Look with me at verse 13. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Jesus has now established that his physical ministry reveals his spiritual authority. But his authority was far more than anything Israel had ever seen in the past. Now, throughout Israel's history, they'd seen men of God. They'd seen men like Moses, like Elijah, like Elisha. They'd seen Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They'd read the prophecies of Isaiah. They had seen things come to pass. They understood of great men like Daniel. And their writings in Babylon. These prophets had validated their message with signs, with wonders, and with prophecies that had come to pass. In fact, we know from Scripture that a uh, prophecy's primary purpose, the primary reason why a prophet would foretell the future, was to validate his current message. The whole reason why they were supposed to tell the future is so that when it came to pass, people would say, Uh oh, what this prophet has been telling us is from God. And that should have oftentimes scared them. More than anything, sometimes it might have reassured them with certain kings of old. But with each of these prophets, there were 
sinful men who were speaking the words that God had not given them as well. There were always men who rise up and said, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord said nothing of the sort. And yet as we see these prophets of old, these men of God, we recognize, and Jesus states very clearly here as he speaks to Nicodemus, that he is in a class all on his own. He is in a different level altogether than those men of old. He states at the beginning of this verse that no man hath ascended into heaven. In other words, every man learns and accepts spiritual truths through some earthly medium. There is always an earthly medium that transcends or mediates between a man and spiritual truth. For the Jews, this medium was a prophet, oftentimes. The prophet of God would come and he would proclaim the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. And consequently, the written word of God in the hands of the prophets. For others, it was the preaching of the truths of God from the mouth of a man who knew the word of God. Perhaps the man in the synagogue, that they would sit at his feet as he read the word of God and expounded to them the scriptures. Perhaps for others, it was a father or a brother, someone who knew the word of God, and they would sit and listen as the word of God was expounded. But there was an earthly medium. See, because no man hath ascended into heaven. No man can go up there and take the words and bring them back down. Except one. See, Jesus was different. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he had been to heaven. That his message is directly from heaven because he is directly from heaven. In this case, Jesus' work shows his authority. This authority being the authority not just of a man of God, but of Messiah. And that authority testified of his divinity. Now follow me as we trace Jesus Christ's argument, his logic through this chapter. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and tells him, based upon Jesus' work and teachings in chapter 2, that it is very clear that Jesus is a man sent from God. He says that right at the beginning. He says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. It's very clear to everyone that he is, he is divinely sent. Jesus takes this statement and uses it to present a spiritual truth that would reveal to Nicodemus his own spiritual ignorance and draw him out, as it were, draw him to a place where he either would humble his heart or harden his heart. Yet Jesus didn't leave Nicodemus with nothing to hold on to. He showed that all men, excuse me, he showed all men that he was from God by the miracles he performed. By his own admission and the testimony of his disciples, he was the long-awaited Messiah. Now, everyone in Israel who knew the Messiah, who knew of the Messiah's coming, knew that the Messiah, one of his names would be Emmanuel. We're coming into the season where that name begins to take on a little extra reference for us. Literally in the Hebrew, God with us. So every man in Israel knew that the man who claimed to be Messiah would not just be a man, but would be God with them would be God in flesh. So the fact that Jesus Christ came claiming to be Messiah and validated the authority of his claims through teachings, through miracles, through righteous acts, all of which that was completely consistent with God's written law concerning the proofs of the man of God would mean that Jesus Christ was telling the truth that he is not only a prophet, but he is in fact divine. That means that Jesus is not simply speaking the words of God as they were given by God, but Jesus is speaking the words of God because he is 
God. The heavenly source has come to earth. Now, to anyone who believes the scriptures, there is no debate. Jesus is Messiah, God in flesh, come to earth. And so the reality of the situation is this. If you do not believe what the Bible testifies concerning what Jesus did and what Jesus said, you will never believe what the Bible testifies concerning who Jesus was and will therefore remain in unbelief. When we do understand and believe what Jesus did and what he said, the earthly proofs of his spiritual authority, the spiritual authority which revealed his divine nature, then we are in a place where it is very easy to take that step and recognize that Jesus Christ was not just a man come in flesh doing great miracles, but was in fact God come in flesh for a purpose. Now, it's my belief at this point in the conversation, Nicodemus is on board. I think this because Jesus again proceeds, and as he proceeds, he proceeds not with an earthly truth, but a spiritual truth. Now, Jesus Christ has already testified that it's not worth giving any man a spiritual truth if he hasn't received the earthly truth. So the fact that he continues on to a spiritual truth means Nicodemus must be on board. Now, we know a little bit later in the in the scriptures that Nicodemus most likely is on board as we'll see further on in the book of John. And this will bring us to our final point this evening. Jesus' earthly ministry was founded upon his spiritual purpose. So he has an earthly ministry. That earthly ministry validates his spiritual authority. The spiritual authority reveals that he is divine in origin, but this earthly ministry, as we've mentioned, was not just here for an earthly purpose. There is a spiritual purpose behind it. And that's what we see in verses 14 and 15. Notice what Jesus Christ says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus did not come to this earth inherently to prove to men that he was Messiah. His purpose was to secure salvation for all who would believe. The fact that he came proving he was Messiah was a simply a necessary step in the process of securing salvation for all who would believe. Jesus walked upon this earth showing people that he was Messiah and urging them unto repentance in order that they might take part in the kingdom of God. Now while the reasons to believe were secured through the ministry of his life, the benefit of belief was secured through the ministry of his death. He gave them every reason in the world to believe on him throughout his life. But it would not be until his death that all of those reasons were manifest in power, in victory over death, over sin, and three days later over the grave. If Jesus had walked upon this earth for 20 more years teaching and convincing the world of him and had not gone to the cross, all of that convincing would have been in vain. Quite literally, without Jesus' death, salvation is not secured. There is no salvation apart from his atonement. And that is the final lesson that we learn from today's passage. Jesus uses an account from biblical history that would have been very, very familiar to Nicodemus. The account is found in Numbers 21. It's a record of rebellion and redemption. 
a story that has become all familiar to each one of us who have accepted Christ as our Savior, a story of rebellion and redemption. The people of Israel were marching along the Red Sea, a substantial distance from the land of Canaan, in order to avoid the land of Edom, who would have presented a more direct route, yet was not the direction that God had them to go in. So they were marching along the Red Sea, going the long way toward Canaan, and the people began to murmur against God and against Moses, questioning why they had ever left Egypt to begin with. Now, it is significant to note that by Numbers 21, we are talking about a large portion of the next generation, that second generation that had come out of Egypt that we're murmuring here, a generation that had never necessarily lived in Egypt. God was very angry with this, and consequently, he sent fiery serpents among the people. Anyone who was bit would die. These fiery serpents were all among the camping, the, the encampment, and when a man was bit, a woman was bit, a child was bit, that man, woman, or child would die. The people came to Moses. They repented of their rebellion. They asked him to appeal unto Jehovah God for mercy. And Moses did. And God commanded Moses to make a brass serpent and to raise that brass serpent up on a standard, up on a pole. And whenever a person was bitten, all he would need to do is look upon the serpent, which was on the pole, made of brass, and he would live. It's a doctrine that we have come to call today, look and live. As Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, he says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus thus makes a historical link between God's method of salvation for Israel in Numbers 21 and his method of salvation for the world in John 3. In theological terms, we'd call this a type-anti-type relationship, where the scriptures make a clear and definitive parallel between some Old Testament person, object, or event with some aspect of the person or work of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, we must be careful to what degree we label things types, but this is without, a, uh, without doubt one such type. To the believing mind, this parallel opens up to us a great understanding of what Jesus Christ was sent to do. When an Israelite was bit, he knew he was going to die. It was his responsibility then to look upon the brass serpent to live. The action of looking at the brass serpent when he physically and purposefully turned his eyes from wherever he was bit to that brass serpent which was upon that pole, that action was an expression of his faith that if he does what he was told to do by God, he would not die from the bite of that fiery serpent. God gave this privilege to every Israelite without any expectation of personal worthiness, without any expectation of personal obligation, without any expectation of personal effort, and without any expectation of personal loyalty. It was an act of grace alone. There was unmerited favor. God had no reason to do this, and they had to do nothing to earn it. They simply had to look. They simply had to take God at his word. If an Israelite refused to look at the brass serpent, even though God had already provided a way for that man to be saved, he would yet die. 
because he didn't exercise his faith. He did not look to live. Thus, through this anti-type type relationship, Jesus would illustrate that salvation was to those who had a problem. See, if somebody wasn't bit, they didn't need to look. So they need to be bit first. They need to recognize they have a problem. Well, we all have a problem. It's a sin problem. We all have been bit, as it were, by the sting of sin. Salvation is then a response whereby one looks to Jesus in faith that he can and will save you from your problem. Just as after that person was bit by the serpent, they had to look to the brass serpent raised upon a standard, believing that that act would thus secure him his health again, that he would not die from the fiery serpent, so too one must understand that to look to Jesus in faith can and will save us from our sin problem. But we recognize as well that this privilege is given to every man. Just as every Israelite had the opportunity, so to every man, regardless of his worthiness, regardless of his works, regardless of his wealth, regardless of his loyalties, regardless of any obligation, without any obligation, He has to look to live. Now if a man refuses to believe on Christ, even though God has made a way for him to be saved, he will yet die. And he will yet spend eternity in hell. And that's the picture. That's the truth. That is the spiritual lesson that Jesus Christ is showing to Nicodemus. That just as that serpent was raised in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But we can't miss verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's the purpose. Why did Jesus come to this earth? What was the earthly ministry about? What were the miracles about? What was the the temple cleansing about? Why Why did it all happen? That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus was on a path to the cross. And he was bringing as many people behind him as he could. While the type-anti-type relationship teaches all of these truths, Jesus' teaching is focused on that one truth. That he came into the world in order to secure salvation for all men. And that this salvation was secured by belief in his name. I trust that those of us under the sound of my voice this evening have done that. Have believed on Jesus Christ unto salvation. But if you have not, you must recognize that we have all been bit by the sting of sin. We are all lost. We are all on our way to doom, to hell, to eternal death. But the solution is plain. The solution is clear. It is to look and to live. It is to see that we have a problem, for we have to know there's a problem in order to even search for a solution. It is to recognize the solution found in Jesus Christ alone, knowing that he was lifted up. We'll get there. And then finally, it is to accept that for ourselves, to appropriate that solution. You've got to look to live. You can't just know that the brass serpent will heal you and not look. Yes, the brass serpent will heal me, but I'm looking in the opposite direction. It's not enough. 
You must look to live. You must turn. You must see it. You must do what God has called you to do. And it's found in verse 15. You must believe. And whosoever believeth in him will not, should not perish, but will have eternal life. Two members of the Trinity have now been explored within the context of this work of salvation. We have learned that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who effects salvation through the process, through the transaction, not a process, a transaction of being born again at the very moment of belief. This week we see that God the Son is that member of the Trinity who has secured our salvation through his death upon the cross. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Next week we'll see God the Father's role. And finally, in that fourth week, we will look at mankind's responsibility, that which we've already spoken of in part this evening. While Jesus Christ lived and ministered upon this earth, he did many wonderful things. He healed the sick and lame. He caused the blind to see. He cast out demons. He fed multitudes. He taught in the Father's name, and he ministered for the Father's glory. Yet in all of these acts, while many of them are significant in their own right, they were all attempts to point the world to the one who would pay the penalty for their sin in his own body on the tree. And as First Peter 2.24 says, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Let's pray.